Um, I'll put them down here. Yeah, you can't look directly at us. You have to watch us through. Yeah, through why the screen. Getting, what's the advantage? I guess you get to see what it looks like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it looks surprisingly good. Mm. It's not that good, but it that looks part, good. That's exactly what Rory says about himself when he watches it. Back. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That's why we can't have the thing. I do know what you mean. Like, I, I, I see you looking off into the distance quite a lot yeah. on the podcasts. Also, oh, no, that's I, just because you talk about guilt yields in his board. Also, I don't know exactly. Guess what my report story is, guys. Four point five percent of GDP oh. on interest rate payments. <laughs> Crazy. No. Just servicing pre-existing me when debt. You're doing it's definitely that. underreported. Hello and welcome to another TLDR News podcast. I am Zach Michaelis, TLDR's Editor-in-Chief, and today I'm joined by Ben Blissett. Hello. And Roy Taylor. Hello. Two of uh, TLDR's, let's just say lead writers. Yeah, we're happy with that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah? sounds nice. good. Um, and in today's podcast, we are going to be discussing, in broad terms, the UK's foreign policy. This is sort of off the back of David Cameron's appointment as Foreign Secretary a couple of weeks ago. Um, and what that sort of says about how seriously the UK takes foreign policy. Um, but as is custom on this podcast, before we get into that, we are going to do underreported stories. Uh, so could we start with Rory? Let's just go I thought you were going to start with yourself there. <laughs> no, <laughs> let's start with no, that. You I want to save the best to last. Of course. Okay. Um, my underreported story is from uh, Central America, from Panama. So Rory. Um, Panama of Canal fame, obviously. <laughs> uh, so um, it's, it's not it. really been like in the headlines, but over the last half year or so, there's been pretty big protests there. Um, they started out in opposition to this um, copper mine, this massive copper mine that's in the country. Um, and this extension, the government were extending the contract for a Canadian mining company for another 20 years. Um, these protests started out as environmental protests. So people, you know, obviously it has a negative impact on the environment. They're protesting against that. But it kind of developed into wider anti-government protests, uh, generally about the contract kind of uh, alleged corruption in the in the uh, issuing of the contract and also um the the amount of money kind of being taken out of the country and going yeah. to this foreign foreign firm so that's the kind of backstory um what happened this week was that the panamanian panamanian is that right yeah yeah panamanian yeah. supreme Sounds court right. struck down this um this 20-year contract as unconstitutional so give this gave, gave this big victory to these protesters for who for months have been kind of calling for it to be scrapped so might sound a bit boring to some people, but it's got bigger implications. So firstly, it's a massive copper mine, one of the biggest in the world. It produces about 1% of the world's copper supplies, and it's now going to be shut down. It mm. also produces, uh, or also kind of um, is behind about 5% of the country's entire GDP. So that's going to be a pretty big effect on Panama. But I think it's interesting because it plays into this wider struggle over resources that plays out over the entire world, but in particular in uh, Central, well, Latin America, because it's very resource rich. You've got this struggle between local people and governments and companies, the kind of environmental struggle, often with indigenous groups on one side and the government on the other side. But also this, this fight between governments and multinational companies about who has the right to extract these resources, who gets the, the profits from that, and uh, where these things go. And South America, I know Panama, Central America, but let's say Latin America, mm -hmm. sorry, is, is a real hotbed of these these struggles. You've got lithium in Chile, Argentina, and Bolivia. That's a big one. Um, I think we've talked about it before, possibly. I think we talked about it in the context of Indonesia yeah. a while ago. Oh, okay. yeah. um, 
I, I always say this in the podcast, but I genuinely think this is such a good unreported story. Thank you. I think it touches on so many interesting things. Um, and the point you're making about this, like, there's this, there's this wider international dispute mm. going on between essentially governments in resource-rich countries and the Western companies that are trying to extract them. Mm. And the consensus in, let's just say, like the 90s and 2000s was that the economically optimal way for these countries to extract the minerals was to get lucrative contracts with these big Western yeah. companies who have the expertise and the, the deep capital flows to extract these resources efficiently. And that consensus has collapsed mm. in the past like few years. And I think the most interesting case of this, by the way, is Indonesia, which is super minimal rich. Yeah. And part of the Indonesian economic model at the moment is to make sure that not just the extraction of minerals, but their processing and their refinement, yeah. all of that has to be done on Indonesian yeah. territory. And so that they don't just want to be used as a sort of like extraction hub. Yeah. And then the expensive high value processes get done abroad in America or whatever. Yeah. They want to be taking value at every point in the supply process. There was, I can't remember who it was. I think it was a politician from Argentina or possibly Brazil saying, we don't want, we don't want to export Brazilian lithium to Germany so they can put it in German cars. Mm. We want to export Brazilian cars made with Brazilian lithium or you know Brazilian car batteries made with Brazilian lithium and sell them in Germany. You know, they want to they want to go beyond just being a source of of you know raw goods basically. Yeah, and and I think they, there's something to be said for that. I think that a lot of companies are seeing that there there is a sort of gold rush mm. when you first begin these partnerships with these like western multinationals, but actually creating a, uh, a sort of like sustainable economy of just resource extraction is really difficult, if not yeah. impossible. And actually a, an effective way of using those resources is to funnel them into developing your sort of industries further up the supply chain. Um, I think this is also ties into the wider, like the green transition and the fact that with the green transition comes this massive increase in demand for a whole load of minerals. I mean, copper is a really good mm. example. Lithium is another good example. And that has created a sort of like a new geopolitics of energy where instead of all of us fighting for oil and trying to secure oil supplies, we're, we're fighting for these sort of like particular metals mm. and also like the, the ability to process them. Um, I, the last thing I'm going to say is I think there's a really interesting historical parallel with what happened to oil in the mid to late 20th century. And for the basically, let's just say like 1900 until a couple of years after World War II, oil in places like Saudi Arabia, mm. Iraq, the Middle East was basically drilled and exported mm. by U European countries. So the most obvious one is um, we had the, I can't remember what it's called, but the UK had a uh, the Iranian oil company. It's called something like that. Um, I should really know the name, but basically that company just took Iranian oil and exported it to the rest of the yeah. world, but uh, only gave very few dividends and proceeds to Iran itself. And there was this rise of sort of what you might call energy nationalism, beginning in really the 50s, uh, beginning really with actually mm. Nasser in Egypt, mm. Um, and eventually, by the sort of the end of the 70s, almost all of those big oil companies had either been kicked out of the Middle East or nationalized by the national governments. I mean, mm. Saudi Aramco is another example of that. Saudi Aramco slowly took over from, I think it might have been Chevron, one of the US companies that was responsible for drilling in Saudi Arabia. Um, and I think we are seeing something similar happen here as other minerals become as sort of like central to the global economy as oil was in the mm. 20th century. I mean, just... On the Egypt point as well, you know, that, that's the thing that, that kicked off the Suez crisis and the US didn't come to Britain's aid in that situation. They were happy with, or at least it, it was seen globally as that they were happy with NASA, you know, renationalising and not getting involved in that situation, or at least not enough to get involved. So maybe we'll see something, you know, the consensus shift in a similar way. I think that's a really interesting point because the, I think one of the reasons that that happened, the one of the reasons that 
in some sense, America could afford mm. to take a humanitarian line on the Suez crisis was because, and this is getting way too historical, so we have to move on <laughs> at some point, but was because America has its own domestic source yes, of oil. Exactly. Uh, and it wasn't as desperate for it as, as not just um, the UK was, but also other European countries were. So the France. other European countries, yeah, France is a classic example. But anyway, um, I mean, Italy is also another example, by the way. Italy had a sort of like energy relationship with certain mm. North African countries for a while. But anyway, let's move on. The second, this is, that was the longest unreported <laughs> yeah. story ever. Yeah. But it's very well reported now. <laughs> what is your unreported story? So um, in, in sort of classic fashion, it's uh, a UK one. Um, basically, the Telegraph's reported today that um, the, there, there is talk within the Conservative Party about possibly scrapping the conference next year, which is meant to be in October in Birmingham. Now, the reason behind this is that um, they're suggesting that the resources needed to hold the conference would, would be taking resources away from a possible general election campaign. Um, so candidates, um, you know, volunteers, etc., uh, door knocking, um, they wouldn't be able to do that. They'd have to go up to conference. So it's lending credibility to the idea that the uh, the next election could be held the back half of next year, possibly October, November, possibly even coinciding with the US presidential election. Um, the, the there are some people they haven't actually said who who is that they've they've kept their sources um, you know secret. They haven't they haven't actually said who's who's reporting this, but they're saying that from a, from a few sources, this is what's being suggested. Um, other sources are suggesting that they might just slim it down. So instead of having three, four day conference, it'll only be one day. Um, but others are saying that it, it, it should still go ahead because it, 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 the conferences are where parties usually get quite a lot of their funding for, or quite a lot of their money. Um, the Tory party conference usually gets in the low millions sort of net for the Conservative Party. And we did a video on this recently. The Tory finances aren't looking brilliant party finances at the minute. So, the idea of completely scrapping it, some are saying, is a bit ludicrous because they're going to need that money, not least for a general election. Um, but yeah, at the very least, um, the takeaway from this is that there is some credibility to the idea that a later election next year is looking more likely. I think, you know, if I had to guess, I'd say that they probably would just scale it down to a day. I can't see them scrapping it. I mean, the other advantage to this as well is that it stops all of these, you know, fringe meetings where you get... Um, you know, people on the Tory right saying some wild stuff that gets all over the media and un undermines the sort of central message. So, um, as we saw sort of this year. Uh, so, yeah, I yeah. think um, I think it's unlikely that they'll scrap it in, in totality, but I think at least I think it's, it's very possible that they're going to reduce it to just be a day. Yeah, it also suggests that, uh, and we've seen reports of this before, that the Tories are running out of money a little bit. Mm. Um, they've got loads of donors moving away from them at the moment. Um, Anyway, yeah, that's a good, good one as well. I think we should probably move on past it just because we don't want to spend forever doing unreported stories. Um, I'll be quick with <laughs> mine as well. All the time. Yeah, my, mine is it's probably even, it's, it's the most boring of all of these, but it is unreported. I, I noticed is he important. started with even, even. and then <laughs> jumped away from um, that. And it is the, just the fact that, according to the OBR, we are going to be spending £100 billion next year or even sort of this, this, this fiscal year. Mm. Um, on just repaying interest on our national debt. And that might not sound too crazy, but actually that does sound crazy. It's absolutely absurd. Um, and it's in part because we borrowed in some pretty funky ways. I mean, the UK and Italy have been the two worst culprits when it comes to borrowing index-linked by index-linked guilts, which is basically when you protect you you borrow you you borrow money and you promise that you will pay them more if inflation goes up and that means that when inflation goes up as it has recently we don't get a sort of tax windfall inflation doesn't eat away at our national debt in the same way that it does eat like other countries um but it's also because we are the way that we did quantitative easing 
is and this is so boring but i'm just gonna try and i'm gonna try and rush through it. it's not gonna really make any sense but the way the contravising which is basically when the bank bought up government debt is they did it via putting bank of england reserves in banks and those banks then use those reserves to buy up the debt and now that the bank of england's base rate goes up that just means that we're paying more money in interest immediately to um those banks and it means that those the interest rates are not set by like market forces. They're just set by the Bank of England base rate. And in some sense, what, what I'm trying to communicate here is that this is entirely self-inflicted. This is the way we have set up, as a country, we've set up monetary policy in these terms. And in the 2000s, when we did it, when it was sort of the Bank of England was in, in, made independent in 1997, that was fine because the monetary environment was very, very nice. But we've set it up to really punish us during times of high inflation. And what's essentially happening is that the government is currently spending $100 billion, and that is you know three times as much as our defence budget. That's more than our education budget. It's more than any other individual ministry apart from the NHS, basically. And we're just paying that to banks just because of some quirk. Well, it's not a quirk entirely, but essentially because of some quirk of our monetary setup. And our monetary setup isn't permanent. We could change it if we want to. And the fact that we're paying such vast sums of money, I mean, it should make this into a political issue. Maybe it's too boring, so it won't become one. <laughs> but I still think that that's just really interesting. And the fact that I think it ties into this wider trend of the repoliticization of monetary policy. But if we were to change that now, presumably you'd still have to be paying, you know, these exorbitant, you know, amounts. It wouldn't, it wouldn't solve it, it our fiscal problems, no, but, but it, it would go some way sure. to doing it. And we need as much help as we can get. I mean, what we, it would actually just be a sort of constitutional kerfuffle. And we'd get lots of accusations of sort of like uh, the Bank of England no longer being independent, all that sort of mm. thing. But the division between the Bank of England, between fiscal and monetary policy, is never as clear as politicians and bankers or central bankers well, pretend no one likes it is. A constitutional kerfuffle. To of course, be who, frank. you're not wrong. <laughs> um, anyway, so with that all being said, let us move on to the main part of today's podcast, which is just going to be about the UK's foreign policy. Mm. We decided to do it on this because, well, this is essentially a reaction to David Cameron's appointment as foreign secretary. I think this is interesting for a couple of reasons. The first is that, as many commentators have noticed, David Cameron doesn't have a great foreign policy track record. And it's a symptom of the fact that foreign policy is often sort of instrumentalised in UK politics as a means to achieving domestic political objectives. You know, David Cameron's appointment is not because he's got a great record track record on Israel-Gaza. It's because Rishi Sunak wants to pitch back to the blue wall. And I think you see... You know, you see this in how well our foreign policy is doing, i.e. it's not going very well. And I think that the, we're going to have to split this video, this podcast up into different foreign policy areas. But I think the most obvious one to start with is Brexit, is our relationship with the rest of the EU. And I think the question I want to ask is, obviously things have fell to a real low under both Johnson and then Truss. There was that famous Macron friend or foe comment <laughs> by Liz Truss. And they've improved a little bit under Sunak, would we say that? And I think I just want to ask basically Rory to start. Like how much do you think they've improved? And do you think they'll continue to improve under Starmer, assuming he comes in? Um, I think it's, they've undoubtedly improved under Rishi Sunak. I mean, the Windsor framework is the obvious thing to point to in terms of post-Brexit um, relations. That was a big achievement. Um, and James, well, James Cleverley, former Foreign Secretary, he was also Foreign Secretary under Liz Truss and possibly under... I can't remember who was Foreign Secretary under Boris Johnson. That's terrible. Anyway, know, my point is, James yeah. Cleverley, uh, he's not just Rishi, he wasn't just Rishi Sunak's foreign secretary, he was there for a bit before, but James Cleverley kind of took this more, um, uh, this, this warmer approach to, to like foreign relations with, with Europe rather than this kind of combative one. But um, so they definitely improved, but there's still moments where you can see the kind of, the domestics, 
the domestic British politics influencing how our government approach Europe. Um, I mean, just recently we had this whole thing with um, the Greek Prime Minister, mm-hmm. Rishi Sunak. Um, you know, that, that was really... I don't know. It seems it almost seems like a kind of pointless thing to talk about, but I do think it is important because it shows that even when relations have been on on a kind of upwards trajectory, they are still there's still always this risk that things can deteriorate. And what Rishi Sunak did, I think, will have longer term implications. Well, maybe not that long term if he's not prime minister for that much longer. Sure. But but when you just when you frustrate and annoy a, a European ally, it's you know. That might be good for your base at home, and if, especially if it's something about like the El- Elgin Marbles or the Parthenon Marbles. But th- that's one of the twenty-seven European leaders that you'll yeah. need to have on side if you want to come on come to any agreement with the European Union. Um, you know, also a NATO leader, obviously. Um, that that it, it it was a real kind of step back, I think, from the approach that he had been doing beforehand. Um, but I think if you look at the kind of net, it's got to be an improvement on. A year or so ago, when he mm. took over, do you, do you think um, Ukraine has helped in that respect, provided like a sort of binding agent? I think so. Yeah, because there's always this thing that they can point to and say, "Look, we've been working with Europe, not inside Europe. We've been working with Europe on this, and we'll continue to." Um, and David Cameron said the same thing. He pointed to Ukraine as the prime example of British European cooperation post Brexit. Um, and interestingly, the Telegraph did a headline on it which said, "David Cameron says uh, the UK should get closer to Europe," and it set off a load of. Um, kind of members of the um, Tory parliamentary party saying... I didn't see that. That's yeah, interesting. I mean, but it was a weird... They didn't, like, quote him. They just kind of said this is what he said, and then he didn't really say it. He just kind of talked up uh, cooperation on Ukraine. Um, but it set off a lot of the kind of uh, Eurosceptic Tory mm. MPs, um, kind of needlessly, I think. But, um, yeah, I think... Well, sorry, going back no, to your no, point, I, I do think Ukraine, yeah, has definitely been this kind of unifying force and you mentioned that I've got a question in a second for Ben, but you mentioned as well that they, that way you framed it is, you know, the, with Ukraine, the UK was working alongside the EU, but yeah. not within it. Do you think that, like, you know, the European political community, that Macron mm. idea of having like almost a tiered Europe on the very outside, you have this wide political community, which is going to include people like, well, in the, in the medium term at least, the UK, yeah. maybe Turkey, maybe a couple of other sort of like EU adjacent players. Do you think that will be a success in that respect if, if Ukraine has proven that we can work alongside but not within? Um, it's difficult to say. I mean, it's obviously, it can be a success in bringing people to the table. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean they'll, anything will go further than that. I mean, I think the first European political community, they had everyone but Lukashenko and Putin. And it was this big success to bring all these people, including Armenia and Azerbaijan, together around the same table. Um, but whether it actually, going forward, gets concrete steps in kind of, the, the, the kind of periphery of Europe, whether we'll actually work on anything beyond just like it being a forum. I, I don't know. It's my answer. I'm yeah, no, no. Yeah. Fair enough. And um, so Ben, I was going to ask you, so hmm. the first thing is you presumably we think Starmer will be in power yeah. in, in, in next year. Do you think, have you got any sense of where his foreign policy is going to go? Do you think, how much do you think Starmer will sort of divert from the like UK norm? Well, I think with Starmer, it, he's, attitude to policy both domestic and foreign at the minute is um trying to very much maintain the status quo yeah. and it's very much trying to um you know he's he's come in as leader following someone who has tried to break the status quo someone who's tried to separate labor out from you know um the the, the sort of centrist brit you know um british uh, you know the um, 
just centrist British politics of, of both the main parties. Starmer has done something completely different. He's trying to show that it's a return to normal. And I think on foreign policy issues, he's very similar on that. He's been really careful, especially on the Israel-Gaza yeah. situation, trying not to... Um, uh, um, ally with with one side more than the other. I mean, at times, sometimes it, when when it first kicked off, he was very much um, uh, pro Israel. He, 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 a lot of his states statements were very pro Israel. Then he started, you know, he, he got some kickback for what some perceived as him um, endorsing um, war crimes with. Uh, the, the Israel withdrawing um, or withholding electricity, water, um, aid to yeah. to Gaza. Um, so he sort of pulled back slightly on that. But ultimately, that's just a demonstration of him trying to be very much a moderate, trying to uh, maintain the status quo. And I, I think that that will be his, his his main aim if he becomes prime minister, especially on foreign policy. The, the EU is exactly the same. I think he's trying to, you know, he was nominally a Remainer, but has said that he doesn't want to try and revisit any of the Brexit arguments or anything like that. I think that, um, you know, he... he he wants to maintain the status quo as, as much as possible. I don't think he's going to be a particular break from the current Conservative government on foreign policy. I, so I completely agree. But I think what's in, so interesting about this is in trying to maintain the status quo, mm. I think Starman was quietly and slowly discovering that the status quo is really it's really unstable yes. in terms mm. of UK foreign policy. I mean, what is the UK status quo? <laughs> so Israel-Gaza, yeah. historically, or let's just say for the last 20 years or so, the UK has been a pretty staunch supporter of Israel. But again, I think he found out that was politically untenable pretty immediately to be like a sort of absolute support mm. of Israel. He rolled it back a little bit. Sunak, by the way, and Cleverly both did the same. I mean, yeah. they both started softening their language at least before Biden and Blinken started softening their language. They were more sort of in tune with European leaders, people like Macron, in that respect. The status quo on UK-EU relations, I mean, like, what is that? We've had maybe like a couple <laughs> of months for Sunak to establish yeah. a status quo, which is sort of like like a moderately peaceful, like we're just going to stay alongside, but not really actually yeah. do anything together. And before that, for the five years before that, it was chaos. It was very antagonistic. I mean, that's not a stable like status quo either. There really just, there just isn't a status quo on UK-EU relations. And I think our, probably our other most important foreign policy relation is with America. Mm. And I don't think there's a stable status quo on that either. I mean, you get sort of the Johnson and Truss era who are like super pro-US, but I think a lot depends on American foreign politics, American po domestic politics. I mean, if Trump comes back into office in It'll 2024... Completely, completely shake things up. Like, th there's no does, status quo. Yeah, yeah. What, what does Starmer do there? You know, and but I think, I we, think didn't have to, we didn't have to bother with sure. Trump during the 2016-2020 presidency because we were so consumed by Brexit. Mm. That was our only foreign policy issue. But if well, Trump comes in... Go on. Well, I was going to say, on, on that, Theresa May very much tried to buddy up a little bit to Donald Trump when he was in. You know, they, they, they were seen holding hands at the White House at one point. You know, they, she was very much trying to... It was early to, on, though, wasn't it? And it then was relatively early on. But it, I, things I soured, didn't they? They, they the soured a little bit, but I still think that her main aim was trying to maintain, you know, what she saw as a special relationship. I, I think and, that was done through through the lens of Brexit, where I was like, yeah, sure. we're leaving the European Union now. We need to really prioritise this relationship with the US. It was it was st still done kind of via Europe. I, I, I completely I, agree. So I completely agree with that. And I think that the Brexit, this fundamentally a lot of this comes mm, back down to Brexit, yeah. and that Brexit completely crippled the foreign policy status quo, whatever that really was, which was sort of somewhere in between the US and the EU. Mm. And it pushed us right over to the US. This is why, by the way, I think David Cameron gets a bit too much stick for how bad he is at foreign policy. I think a lot of it just comes down to the fact that he, if Brexit had gone the other way, Cameron wouldn't have such a terrible foreign policy record. It's that Brexit went the way it did. Mm. And that immediately meant that 
David Cameron's main foreign policy, which was the golden era of China relations, was completely scuppered because the UK's only foreign policy pivot was to just get close to the US post-Brexit. Um, but I completely agree. And I think this is just, this is the, the issue, isn't it? Is that post-Brexit, we've only really just Brexited in a way. We haven't really had time to develop a foreign policy and we just don't know what it is. Um, yeah, I think as well, though, um, especially with the US, when... When Blair came in, in in 97, you know, he had had Clinton for a little while and then he moved on to, you know, his opposite in the White House was George W. Bush, who didn't share his ideals as much um, and he managed to forge quite a close relationship and they were very keen on, you know, UK-US relations. I think that Starmer, if I, I, I think that he is likely to do similar, even if it is Trump next year. I think that he his, his view of things is going to be very much US-focused. I think that, you know, he's very informed by the Blair era and the Blair years. And I think that his view to foreign policy will likely follow that as I, well. And I think that the, the, the US special relationship is going to be something quite important. But I think, I think Starmer, assuming Starmer gets in and Trump gets in, mm. I think that will put Starmer in an incredibly difficult situation because currently with Biden, Starmer, let's use Gaza as an example, Starmer's effectively been saying no to a ceasefire while Biden's been saying no to a ceasefire. Mm. And if the US changes tune, then it's plausible that a lot of the rest of the world will change tune change their tune including Starmer but if you get Trump in and and the key thing with Trump is how unpredictable he is you know if if Trump starts cutting aid to Ukraine rolling back support for Ukraine there's no way Starmer's going to do that no. he's going to suddenly have to work out how to kind of stand up for his own foreign policy rather than aligning with the US I think one of the issues here quite fundamentally is that in terms of our political instincts and actually in terms of the sort of geopolitical reality that we live in that's got that's so pretentious but what i mean by that is we just can't really follow the us it's the yeah. natural thing to do post brexit but actually things that in our interests our interests just do more closely align with the sort of median eu mm. country you know i think israel gaza was another really good example of this the, the us just has its own interests when it comes to israel and gaza it has a you know obviously a very very deep relationship which is important for both international and domestic reasons to maintain with israel but the other thing is that it's and we've mentioned this before in this podcast the US is just insulated from all of the negative externalities that could flow out of a sort of Israel-Gaza escalation. I mean, like if you get another refugee crisis, for example, the place that's most acutely affected is going to be Europe. Another sort of like ISIS style, I mean, that's unlikely, but, you know, some sort of destabilization, let's say mm -hmm. the Sinai Peninsula and some increased risk of terrorism, the place that's most affected is Europe. And America has more power in the Middle East but it's insulated from the worst potential consequences. And that's just where the, the interests just do cut in different directions. Mm. And also the domestic interests cut in different directions. Maybe not as starkly as they used to, but Starmer, supporting Israel is really politically difficult for Starmer. I mean, the polling suggests that maybe this has been overstated a little bit. His polling has stayed very, very strong, despite all that talk about Muslim voters ditching Labour. Um, but the politics of domestic political consensus are very, very different mm. for Biden and the Democrats. And I think you're right, by the way, that Starmer is, he clearly, in some sense, sort of imagines himself as a British Biden, or at least a British Democrat. Mm. You know, there's a lot of ideological overlap between Britain, the UK Labour Party, and the Democrats in the US. Um, but and the Green New Deal, by the way, is the most obvious example of this. I mean, that is sort of copy and pasted from the Democrat playbook. But if Trump comes in, or even if sort of like domestic political currents push the Democrats to a different place politically, all of a sudden that relationship looks very, very tenuous. And even if Biden is reelected, there will be a Republican in at some point. Mm -hmm. And assuming current political trends continue, that will just make the UK-US special relationship, or at least the using the UK-US special relationship as a sort of buffer to our bad relationship with the EU, 
it will just make that an untenable foreign policy strategy. Um, the other thing I think is that the Bush example is really interesting. Mm. And I think it's instructive in this case. I think the first thing says that Bush is just not Trump. George Bush, no, just not course. Trump. Yeah. The other thing is that in the many ways, um, Tony Blair's very close relationship with George Bush was his downfall. You know, I mean, that is yeah. one of the reasons he ended up in Iraq. He or, fell up with a whole load of the UN over that sort of thing. He fell up with much of the EU mm. over that. Um, and he even got flit, a, a fair bit of flack for his support of Israel. I think it must have been in 2004 um, when he followed the Bush line and sort yeah. of being unequivocally support for Israel. And I think that with those lessons in mind, again, that makes start, that may, means that Starmer just can't do a Blair in that respect. He can't buddy up to the next US president in the same way that Blair did with Bush because he must have learned from the Blair-Bush experience. I think my point is, is that going back, Labour has quite, quite, that their prime ministers always end up buddying up to, to American presidents, whether that's for financial reasons as it was with Wilson, whether it was for sort of geopolitical reasons, you know, they, they, they tend to do so. I think that they see them as, as uh, you know, Britain's closest ally. And you see that throughout the post-war era with, I know there's not been many Labour prime ministers, but with basically all of them. Um, and, it, you know, a lot of it is kind of financial, but a lot of it also is, I think, ideological overlap. And that, that also happens when you have um, presidents in that aren't, uh, you know, that, that are from the Republican Party, that, that aren't, don't necessarily align with the Labour Party. And I don't see Starmer breaking that trend. So I think that, yeah, I think the consensus here is that I think we all agree that Starmer's instincts will be to buddy up with the US, mm. whoever it really is. And in some sense, that's continuous with the way that conservative leaders have behaved post-Brexit. But I think we also agree that in many ways, that if, if, if not unsustainable, that is at least a problematic strategy. Sure. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I don't really see a way out of it. I think that as I, my, my, my obvious, my personal way out of it would be to lean a bit more closely to the eu i think that our just our interests just do align better mm. with the with the eu but i see where you i take your point about the sort of like the political realities and the fact that historically the us and the uk have had a special relationship which some will definitely want to maintain mm. specifically okay. though labor and as well yeah of course true yeah okay so the last thing we, we've done europe we've sort of done the us uh, and related to that though is obviously china and the UK's channel relationship. This is especially pertinent because David Cameron's flagship foreign policy was what he described as the golden era of UK-China relations. Um, and that is, it's almost like funny to think back to that time because we've obviously got Can all these... the pictures on the, screen yeah, of David Cameron and the, the Xi Jinping in the past. I was just yeah. about to bring the past thing up, yeah. Um, and, you know, that, I mean, it was quite interesting quite how stubbornly Cameron's administration pursued that policy because even at the time... Obama was saying, talking about pivot to Asia. Obama put, for example, a lot of pressure on the UK not to join the Asian Infrastructure Bank in 2015, but Osborne and Cameron went ahead with it. Um, and that policy obviously sort of collapsed. And it's easy to think, I mean, the, the natural... Uh, let me just redo that. That policy obviously collapsed. And you might assume that's just because now everyone sees China in a very, very different light. But I think, as we mentioned a second ago, it was sort of because of Brexit because actually Brexit meant that we didn't really have the sort of geopolitical uh, capital to move that far away from the US, especially if we were already, you know, moving away from the EU. And so I guess what the question is here is like, in light of the fact that the US and China look like they're moving towards a sort of, a sort of detente, I mean, not like a peace, but mm -hmm. like a, a, a better space. Do we think that there's any chance that Cameron can sort of resume his, his UK-China 
golden era dream there was i think just in the last few days he did an interview um and basically said that you know obviously they asked him about is it is that is that possible and he said the situation now is different to what it was 10 years ago or something but um which is kind of an easy easy answer to give to that question um but uh i i, I don't think he's gonna like overhaul the uk's china policy the one that we had before he came back as foreign secretary i mean yeah. rishi sunak and james cleverly were kind of always there was always that tension between them and the the more anti-china side of the Tory yeah. party saying that sunak and cleverly and co were kind of too weak on china and but david cameron i think effectively has that same kind of position as they do that happened they, in the campaign didn't it Lucy? yeah trust attacks soon after being weak on yeah, china where they you know saying china is poses a strategic challenge but it's not they don't call it a threat you know so mm. i don't think he's gonna like tear up and rewrite the foreign policy on china really he also doesn't really have time no i mean like it's not enough time to <laughs> yeah. pivot anywhere no yeah um so the other thing i guess is do we think that Starmer, what do, I, get with, I presume your answer to this is going to be that Starmer is going to follow the American line, but do we think that Starmer is going to pursue a softer policy on China? I mean, it feels like he wouldn't be as hawkish as Boris Johnson or Liz Truss, but I don't really know where that intuition is coming mm. from. I just don't think he would be. No, I, I'm, I don't really have much more to say other than, yeah, I think he'll follow the US line. I, I think that you're right. Um, I, I just, I don't see him moving in any particular direction, especially early, early on. He's, he's so concerned about, you know, uh, shifting polling party unity and everything else. I just think doing some massive strategic shift, especially early on, doesn't seem... No, like I see what you mean. And I guess the, the implication there is it just depends on what the US does. Yeah. Uh, and that's sort of the case. I think, by the way, this is another example of, of what's well, two things. One, it's a policy that was scuppered by Brexit. Mm. Because I think there is a universe where if Brexit goes the other way, all of a sudden Cameron's like closer relationship with China would have been sustainable. Um, I think it would be a point of tension in the US-UK relationship, but I think he could have been like a Germany, you know, mm. like maintaining really quite close like trading relationships, but not actually falling out with the US. Um, I also think that would be interesting because it would have created almost like a pan-European consensus because you would have the Germans with a commercial relationship. I mean, Macron talking about strategic autonomy, yeah. i.e. having like a relatively friendly relationship with China, independent from the US, and you would have had a sort of like a Cameronite conservative party pursuing at least quite friendly relationships mm. with China would have made geopolitics very, very different. <laughs> um, but the other, yeah, I think it's, this is another case where actually I do just think that our, our interests align more closely with the EU than the U S again, the U S just can afford to like decouple from China. It just has the industrial base. It has the like mineral resources. It has the economy to do it. Whereas I think Europe is quite quickly realizing this is such a miserable podcast, but Europe <laughs> is quite quickly realizing that it just can't afford it. And that especially if we all simultaneously try and do green new deals, there's only, we, we can't all just like reindustrialize. There's only so much demand for mm. industry. There's only so much like space in the market. Um, and yeah, I think that we're going to much aspirational as it is, I think Starman will quickly realize that trying to do a Biden style green new deal at the same time that Biden is doing a green new deal, is going to be very, very difficult. Um, yeah. but I think you're probably right in that his, just his aversion to rocking the boat will probably mean that he doesn't get any closer to China mm. anyway, or unless the Americans do. <laughs> uh, anyway, that is, <laughs> that is, I think that's it. That's for the main body of the podcast. Yeah. And that takes us on to what should be hopefully cheerier and a bit more fun, <laughs> which is the Global Leader Leaderboard. OK, 
Okay, so we have the Global Leader Leaderboard, uh, and we're going to go the same way we did unreported stories. So, Rory, should we start We start with down, and we finish on up, yeah. don't we, because it's nice. Yeah. yeah. Um, Let's go down. So, who down. is going down? I'm moving down. Ulf Christensen. I'm going to speak into oh. my microphone. Ulf Christensen, Swedish Prime Minister. He's one of the highest on there at the moment. I'm moving him down one. You mean Mark Rutter, yeah. <laughs> he happens to look like Mark Rutter and... Lots of other people. Anyway, so he's, he's coming down uh, for two reasons, broadly. One uh, was this week he had to condemn some comments made by the Sweden Democrat leader. Sweden Democrats are a kind of broadly far-right party in Sweden that isn't in the coalition but offers parliamentary support to the kind of right-wing government in Sweden. Um, the leader of the, the Sweden... If I said Social Democrats at any point during that sentence, I meant Sweden Democrats. The Sweden Democrat leader, um, he made some comments about Sweden should demolish mosques and um, no. that kind of thing, kind of off the back of Gert Wilders winning in the Netherlands. Um, and Olf Christensen had to come out and say, you know, that's not on. We don't do that in Sweden. Yeah, he basically yeah. had to condemn this. But it's this tension between him and the people he relies on for support. Um, they're also The Sweden Democrats are also a larger party than he is, than, than his party is in government. Um, and on top of that, polling is also looking pretty bad for, for his party, the moderate party, um, and his coalition allies. Um, the Social Democrats continue they're, to poll way ahead. It. Absolutely killing yeah. it, yeah. If you hear, I mean, we did a video we're talking about, you hear lots of stuff about Sweden yeah. moving right, but the Social Democrats are polling like 40%. Yeah, you kind of forget that the actual government is a minority government that kind of cobbled together coalition, whereas, yeah, the Social Democrats just... Just doing great. I also saw that the latest polling suggests that the Sweden Democrats have now overtaken the yeah. moderates. Yeah, Is that what you were going to say? Yeah, oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say, oh, well, it's fine. <laughs> oh, it's fine. Um, um, so, so, yeah, um, basically not, not looking good for him. Poor old. But I, I'm, I'm not trying to make it seem like he's, the government's going to collapse or anything, but I think the broad trajectory for him is that, he, you know, if an election came anytime soon it wouldn't wouldn't be good yeah the return of like islam as a political issue feels so like 2015 you know what i mean it feels, while you talk i'm going to move him down it just feels so like um there was a lot of chatter back in the 2010s about what was described as the clash of civilizations it's that yeah. samuel huntington book about like how the, the main i mean it's not very like serious book but the the, the main like political battle is not no longer between like communism and capitalism, but it's now kind of between like political Islam and like secular liberalism, whatever it's supposed to be. And that really just disappeared as a discourse mm. in mm. the last couple of years. And it's really been a very sudden return. I think it's the Israel Gaza thing has really brought it up yeah, again. For sure. Probably also the migration is a mm. like, hot button topic. So it should be a cycle really. Maybe. Anyway, so that was my person going down. That's good. Yeah, uh, ben, who's your person going yeah, down? Yeah, I'm moving Olaf Schultz down. Again, oh, down to the bottom. Yeah, which I do think means he's at the very bottom. Yeah. So this is um, to do with the budget crisis at the minute and the fact that a top court has ruled that um, their funding for renewables breaks their debt limits. You're smiling slightly. This is exactly. We talked about this last podcast, and this is exactly the reason he went down last week. Oh, I wasn't on yeah. last podcast. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. no, he's been moved Sorry. down twice. Double down. Thing. Double down. I think it's I, probably it's a, fair to move him down twice for it because it's quite a big, yeah, quite a big deal. It is quite a big deal. I like, also think it's, it's, it's created some quite funny moments. Yeah. You saw the Greek guy, the Greek prime minister, telling him to sell his islands, mm. the, well, Germany to sell their islands to solve their fiscal issue, which is a callback to the fact that, yeah, during the Eurozone debt crisis, the Germans told the Greeks to do the same thing. Yeah. Um, I do think it's, the, I mean, it's, a, it's just the way that Germany is going to have to respond to the fact that for the first time in a very long time, it's like 
its, its economy is basically slowing mm. and it can't maintain the sort of like fiscal rectitude that it previously did. That's just such an interesting political question. Like, I don't know how, what happens to German politics in that context. Like German politics looks, has looked super stable for like 20 years, basically since the 2000s. There was the post-reunification like struggle in the 90s. Um, but since 2000s, just been running great. Like, I surpluses. saw, I think it was a leader of the C. SU, whichever one is the one in Bavaria. Um, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, he was saying that, he was basically calling for an early election. Is that the guy who was really popular? Marcus Yeah, Soda? Marcus Söder. It's Söder. Uh, <laughs> it's Marcus Söder. <laughs> um, yeah, he was calling for an early election. And I guess we touched on this. If the de if the FTP kind of were to like drop out of the coalition, I guess that would be the, the result. They would, but, but I think it's very unlikely, just yeah. a simple fact, the FTP are polling oh, yeah, nearly be below wipeout. threshold. Yeah. So the Bundestag has a 5% vote mm. threshold and the FDP are polling like 5%. Yeah. So they've basically said, no, we're not going to pull out. It's yeah. quite funny because their membership said you should pull out or at least a significant <laughs> fraction. And Kristen Linden was like, I obviously can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't have a party anymore. Yeah. Um, if he was on the board, I mean, he should be going down. Kristen Linden, yeah. Linden uh, his, all of his sort of black zero dreams are going in the bin. Yeah, kind of having the national leader, the, you do kind of project all the nation's yeah, problems exactly. on that one person, yeah. but you know. It's true. It's tough. Part of the um, job. Okay, so my person going down is oh he's oh I've given him to you oh yeah I've got I him. have and I just feel like he should go on the board I have Emmanuel Macron yeah and I've got you know I've got to make my biases clear here um, I am super pro Macron I I I think he's great um, but his poll ratings are abysmal mm. and two of his ministers are currently suffering with corruption crises he can't maintain parliamentary discipline. Um, and you know, things just aren't looking very, very good for him at the moment. So I thought I'd put him on the board and put him put him down, unfortunately. Gives me an excuse to put him up week yes. after week. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the good news for him is that he doesn't have to worry about re-election. He can kind of no. do what he wants for a few years. But it's a bit, and, it's it's a bit worrying that bleak. he's sort of becoming a bit of a lame duck yeah. what, one year into his second term. He's mm. got four years left. Yeah. You can't be a lame duck for four years. Um, <laughs> that's a rule of thumb. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's this thing where second term without a re-election that issue of re-election he can kind of take on those big challenges like pension reform possible constitutional reform but you know that is a big slog and it's only going to mean tougher kind of political fights for the next four years and even if you do have constitutional quirks that can make you force things through mm. fundamentally you have a limited amount of political capital yeah and he's running through it at quite a rate especially if he ends up forcing through the immigration bill which mm. i don't know if that's happened yet. i know it hasn't know. Yeah. but it looks possible um, okay. But good to have him on the board. Yeah. yeah, good to have him on the board. Can't yeah. believe he's not been on there all day. No. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh, poor guy. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, let's move on. Uh, so who's going up, Rory? Um, my, I, I will admit this is a pretty weak reason to put someone up. I'm putting Donald Tusk up because um, he... <laughs> the bluest eyes on the board. Yeah. Uh, he... That's nothing to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Get him up there. He is uh, not quite yet... Polish Prime Minister, but um, he basically, Politico do this uh, European power rankings every year, and they just put those out yesterday, and he is, according to them, the that's most powerful man in Europe. Um, no, I think most that's powerful a good person reason. in Europe, I should say. Uh, so, yeah, I thought I thought it's fair to put him up yeah. for that. Um, but, yeah, he's still waiting to become Prime Minister. There's an interesting thing happening now where uh, President Duda in Poland, he is, he is appointed um, a law and justice government yeah. 
again but it's only gonna last two weeks because they need to win a confidence vote within two weeks to last but it's like this pointless thing just to delay him coming in yes yeah, so, i saw it's such a petty move yeah like, it's quite pathetic actually yeah and it's but, also just so redundant like two weeks of delay yeah fine yeah yeah but uh he'll be i guess prime minister by christmas probably i yeah. suppose yeah it's a pretty good life british pm um <laughs> ben who is your who is your guy going um, up mine is sadiq khan going up sadiq He's, khan um, Wow. Yeah, I see him. He is there. He is on there, isn't he? Yeah, yeah good. Oh. Um, <laughs> basically, <laughs> his, just imagine he's gone up. Yeah. His pollings, um, some, some polling from YouGov came out yesterday. Such a professional podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. I'll fix it. <laughs> Shall I just carry on? Or? No, no. Actually, it could be quite fun to yeah, carry on. Yeah? Yeah. Shall yeah. I keep <laughs> so basically, there was some new YouGov polling yesterday, and it put him at a whole 25-point lead um, over the Tories. So it puts uh, Susan Hall, who's the Conservative candidate for mayor next year, at 25%, puts Steve Khan at 50%. Obviously, the voting system has changed. So yeah, do you want to explain uh, that a bit more? Because that I think I think that was a story that got really underreported when it happened, and it was really I mean, cheeky is underplays it. I mean, it's, yeah, it feels sort of constitutionally illegal by the Conservatives. So it's, it's now first past the post. Yeah. Previously, it was proportional. Yeah, and previously, um, if you got uh, if you didn't get fifty percent in the first round, you would reallocate to the the second round, and so on and so on and so on. Yeah, your second preference. Got majority, votes. Yeah, your yeah. second preference. Yeah, um, so. That is obviously supposedly better for smaller smaller parties. It's supposed to be more representative. Um, the larger parties are the ones that will mainly benefit from first past the post. But I, to my knowledge, there wasn't a referendum or anything else no, like no. that on it. It was just unilaterally sort of That's changed. Right. Yeah, they just changed the voting system because they thought they had a better chance of winning on the yeah. first past the Whereas post. Constitute obviously the UK doesn't have a codified constitution. There's no like legal requirement yeah. to put these to a referendum. But usually in the European context, constitutional changes well, require any a like developed country. Like that's what you you can't just change your electoral no. system. Which yeah. is why we had in 2011 the AV referendums change um, the way you know it was proposed that we would change the way the general elections worked. The AV system. That's yeah. why we had a referendum on it, which we said no to. Also, um, I think they've avoided controversy because it looks like Sadiq Khan is going to win again, so there won't be some sort of like yes. dodgy outcome. But had Susan Hall, if well, if yes. Susan Hall wins via first past the post, and it becomes increasingly apparent that she only won because of first past the post, or at least that was a necessary condition to her winning, mm. then you can imagine there's going to be a fair bit of uproar, mm. at least amongst like London Labour voters. It's amazing because whenever the government seems to change anything constitutionally to supposedly be in their favour, such as the new voter ID requirements, it seems that afterwards it's actually got even worse for them. You know, it's a 25-point yeah. lead for, for Labour at the minute, and voter ID laws, um, I think that came in right before some by-elections that they lost, and actually turned out that it was older people who were more affected, who were more likely to vote Tory yeah. because of the voter ID changes. So I suppose the lesson here is don't mess with things constitutionally. <laughs> but it ever. is that, you know, you see my point, is that so far we've avoided some sort of like yes. uproar about it because the results have been uncontroversial. Mm. Mm. But they've done a lot of constitutional fiddling, a lot of electoral fiddling, and in a different universe, or even one where like this all gets a bit closer, yeah. um, you could see that being a massive point of like tension. That would be that would be like a, a proper constitutional issue. We could be a little bit of a deadlock. Anyway, yeah. It, so far we've avoided it, and it looks like, according to polling, controversy will be avoided and Labour will have a stonking great majority everywhere. Um, so <laughs> the next <laughs> the next bit is my guy. Who's going yeah. up? Oh God, uh, we'll do more. I, controversially. <laughs> Don't break it this time, please. Okay. I mean, not actually that controversially once I give the reasoning, but mine going up is Benjamin Netanyahu, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who at time of writing is still Israeli Prime Minister. And I think that is why he's going up. I mean, 
two things are true. I mean, first, that his polling is appallingly bad. And at least the polling that came out sort of in October suggested that the majority of Israelis did want him gone. Um, and there was a sense that he was only going to hang, hang on until the war sort of finished. But we've had a truce. Uh, the truce is pretty tenuous, but it's, it's held for a couple of days now. And Netanyahu is still in post. Um, and the other thing that's worth saying is that historically, basically these sort of like security crises have normally led to the downfall of Israeli prime ministers. And the fact that, again, Netanyahu is still in post is quite impressive. And he, he really is a political survivor, but he's a survivor, one of those political survivors who's a survivor in the sense of that they just never say they're going to go. It's like mm. Boris Johnson was like a survivor. It's just because he's sort of like stubbornly sat in office and Netanyahu mm. is sort of doing the same thing. Um, but the fact that he's still in post, I think is enough to put him up the wall. Yeah. Cool. I mean, if if the requirements now are just that the person remains in post for us to move them up, it's going to make my sort of job easier to find people to move <laughs> yeah. up in the next few it's weeks. It's going to be a very busy top of the wall. Yeah. Um, okay. I think that is just about everything. Have I missed anything? No. No. So we're done. We've done unimportant stories, the main bit, and the leader, leader, leaderboard. Um, okay. Well, that's everything. So thank you very much for watching. And we will see you again, not just next week, but we'll actually be doing. This is a last minute plug, but we'll be doing two podcasts next week because we have decided that we're going to be doing a UK podcast and a global podcast. Should be noted, though, that you might not find them here anymore on the podcast channel. Another good point. You will not find these podcasts here. You will find them on the cameras are changing. You will find them on the UK and global normal TLDR channels, respectively, which will be linked, which will be linked. Down below, cameras are still changing. <laughs> All right, that is everything. Thank you very much for watching slash listening and hopefully see you twice next week. Bye-bye. <laughs> Good. <laughs>